Welcome to the Labyrinth. I'm your host Pratham Pado. If you find our podcast useful, please subscribe. My guest today is John Chavez, the founder of DMT Quest, a non-profit dedicated to publicizing endogenous DMT-related research and fundraisers. He is the author of the books Question for the Lion Tamer, Part One and Part Two, and he is also the producer of the recent DMT Quest documentary. In this episode, we'll be talking about endogenous DMT, its medical benefits, pratyek, and the human potential. All right, John, welcome to the labyrinth. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Nice to meet you. So, what was your intention behind uh, starting DMT Quest? Well, uh, I think that endogenous DMT is a fascinating conversation to have. And one of the things lacking around the conversation is more scientific studies. Uh, you know, in 2013, there was a study regarding the pineal gland secreting DMT at the University of Michigan. And then it took a whole another six years for another endogenous DMT study to come out, the one that we highlighted in the DMT Quest documentary. And uh, I just feel like uh, I had started DMT Quest, the company in 2016, because I just felt that there wasn't, there wasn't enough uh, research going on because there was a lack of fundraising. So that was the whole premise of getting it started because <clears throat> I feel that, you know, especially from a conversational standpoint, if somebody has a mystical experience, uh, endogenous DMT allows them to have conversations with people that normally might not be open to mysticism uh, from the, the spiritual aspect, you know, because you have people that have been practicing meditation and yoga and maybe people that have had mystical experiences throughout their life. And then you have people that haven't had mystical experiences, but maybe they've had a psychedelic experience. And I feel that DMT allows people to meet in the middle and have those conversations about mysticism. That's interesting. Um, a lot of people talk about exogenous DMT, DMT externally. I, I think uh, through your documentary, I got introduced to DMT, endogenous DMT for the first time. Uh, how would you say that endogenous DMT is different from exogenous DMT? Well, I think that most of the people that describe exogenous DMT are the full-blown mystical states where they might feel like they had a connection with the spiritual entities or God or things of that nature. I think that endogenous DMT can be tied in with those types of mystical experiences or uh, with beings and God, but I also feel like there is a much wider range that uh, coincides with endogenous DMT, something like uh, based on enhancing mood or slightly brighter colors, brighter perception, a more optimistic outlook on life. Um, maybe even things like control over your autonomic nervous system, like we highlighted with the Wim Hof method. Uh, we know that yogis have been able to go ahead and, and control their body in certain ways for, for thousands of years as well. So I feel as though maybe there's an aspect of supernormal abilities that might be uh, dormant. And when we upregulate the endowaska system, like I like to call the DMT system, that maybe some of those abilities uh, come online and, and we're able to kind of have a better understanding of what the human potential is. Have you had a psychedelic experience prior to starting DMT Quest? I had a mystical experience uh, prior to starting DMT Quest. I had a, a non-exogenous drug-induced mystical experience that... Uh, really got me curious about the biomechanics of the mystical experience because, you know, prior to my own direct experience, <clears throat> I didn't believe that 
any of that was true. I didn't really have any interests interest in anything spiritual or, or mystical. I didn't. I felt like it was all either pure hallucinations or that it was all fake. <clears throat> so in 2013, I had a mystical experience in which um, I did a deep cleansing of, of my gastrointestinal system. And then I had like electric surges throughout my body. And uh, <clears throat> basically, uh, I started to have uh, full control over my autonomic nervous system. I was able to go ahead and control the temperature of my body based on my intent. And that's what got me really intrigued that, uh, you know, there's somebody else doing it on a big level like Wim Hof, you know, he's showing people thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people how to do the same thing. So that's why I just went down that rabbit hole of trying to better understand the biomechanics that uh, can replicate these mystical states for everybody. Could DMT or other psychedelic drugs help us to live a spiritually fulfilling life? I think that psychedelics can open the doorway and I feel as though maybe spiritual practices like breath work or yoga or meditation or a combination of all, uh, they, they go hand in hand. I've heard of a lot of people that, you know, they have one mystical experience and it leads them to adopt like a more vegetarian sort of lifestyle and a more yoga, incorporating more holistic sort of methods to live, uh, I guess, in a, in a different sort of way. And I, I feel as though that can cultivate a sort of uh, connection with oneself in a different manner. Absolutely. I think that psychedelics offer a good gateway. They don't have to be the only gateway. They don't have to, they're not for everybody, but um, I feel as though they can open people's eyes that need their eyes open. And then from there, it's up to the person to continue either with, you know, holistic practices, or if they want to go ahead and, and continue um, ingesting psychedelics, that's their prerogative. Okay. And uh, what is the best way to produce DMT endogenously? That's a great question. You know, a, a very reliable way, but a not so practical way seems to be uh, things like respiration, like rhythmic respiration, especially when you couple it with things like prolonged darkness. Um, you know, I have a good friend of mine, Dr. Edith Ubuntu Chan. Uh, she went to Harvard uh she, she got a mathematics degree at Harvard and then she went on and had a mystical experience. And then she, she like me, went in to go ahead and explore the different altered states of consciousness. And she did this thing called a dark room retreat where you spend prolonged days in the darkness. And um, usually what happens is, you know, it's an eight or nine day retreat where you spend in complete darkness, not even one little photon of light. And people start to experience uh, visions, you know, even in their waking states. Uh, about the third day and a lot of people have described it as very similar to ayahuasca or DMT. I was recently on the Aubrey Marcus podcast and he described uh, doing a dark room retreat as well and he has done DMT and ayahuasca uh, maybe dozens if not hundreds of times and he said that on the third day of his darkness it was exactly like DMT. So that, that's one way like for sure that people could have visionary experiences and other ways, maybe like sensory deprivation tanks, those flotation tanks. I don't know if you've ever heard of those yeah. or people float in the, in the salt water in the complete darkness. That's another way that people can induce uh, mystical states. And, and right now we're, we're kind of uh, hypothesizing that these mystical states that happen naturally coincide with an upregulation of endogenous DMT. So we don't have, the proof of taking blood samples yet, but the only thing we do have is uh, the correlatory brainwave 
uh, changes that take place during these altered states. And then we can compare them to when people either smoke DMT or take ayahuasca. And there is some similarities there for sure. So that's what we think. Things like breathwork, things like sensory deprivation, darkness, uh, even things like fasting can uh, seem to uh, upregulate endogenous DMT. And have you personally tried any of these methods like uh, breathwork or flotation tanks? Yeah, absolutely. And I have got some interesting um, experiences from flotation tanks. I wouldn't say that I had full-blown mystical experiences, but I did get uh, definitely a light, some lights showing up when there wasn't supposed to be lights because it's complete darkness. Um, especially when I do breath work, I, de I definitely feel like a, a good sense of euphoria, which has been described with the, the lower level of exogenous DMT usage. So I do feel like, yeah, I, I have had some experiences like that using those techniques. Do you think endogenous DMT can also be applied in the field of uh, mental health uh, therapeutics? Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, one of the things that we know for sure about DMT and what it seems to be with most of the serotonergic psychedelics is that they induce uh, changes in the brain structure. So it seems as though some of the issues taking place with uh, <clears throat> mental health issues could be that they want to go what you want to do is change the brain structure so you change the way you perceive the problems in your life because it seems as though what happens is people can get in in the sort of a repetition phase of they can't get out of their own head they keep thinking about the same problem over and over almost obsessing about it and when you take a psychedelic <clears throat> what happens afterwards is that the brain structures are changed allowing them to perceive the world through different eyes and endogenous DMT is no different. It's the same chemical. So if we can use these techniques to upregulate, uh, we can probably afford to uh, allow us to go ahead and change some of our brain structures as well using the same techniques. Like we've seen meditation causes neuroplasticity. We've seen sensory deprivation have great effect on people with PTSD. Same thing with breath work. You know, Wim Hof method has done great for changing people's uh, health and their mental health. So absolutely. That's interesting. What other mental experiments have you tried? Have you tried meditation or visualization? Yes, I've tried meditation. I've tried guided meditation, hypnosis, uh, visualization. I created a visualization on my uh, YouTube channel for DMT Quest that uh, it basically tells people to visualize electricity going from their head and down their right hand and making their hand warm. And uh, the feedback's been tremendous so far. It seems as though a lot of people are able to do it, even on their first try, even if they've never meditated before. So those are the type of things that excite me, is that people start to realize that in these altered state of consciousness, you know, outside of their normal waking consciousness, somewhere in between waking and sleep, a different state of consciousness allows them to control their body in certain ways that they can't uh, in their normal state. That's fascinating. Why do you think uh, th these kind of experiments have been undiscovered for so long? I think that, uh, you know, that's a great question. It's, um, you know, there's there's the conspiracy aspect that is uh, suppressed uh, for whatever reason so that people don't know about it. And then there's also the monetary aspect that it doesn't seem that you can necessarily make a lot of money on it. So it's not like governments are throwing a lot of money at these sort of research. But and then there is, there is the other aspect that this research has been going on for many, many years. If you look at biofeedback that took place in the 70s and uh, all the hypnosis study that took place in the 70s, then you could see that 
there has been like a quite vast amount of studies that have taken place. They're just not well popularized. So people just don't know about it if you don't look for it. It's not going to be in your newspaper every day, right? Like, you know, you have your drug companies that they have the money to buy advertisement, public relations, so they get coverage in the newspapers. And, you know, if you have a scientist who's just studying uh, the brain, mind, body connection, they're not going to get that much publicity, right? So it's, it's it, there's so many different ways you can look at as to why. And do you also think maybe it's the profit aspect? Because if people start to produce DMT endogenously, and if you could cure some of our mental illnesses by ourselves, uh, I mean, all the pharma companies producing the anxiety medication would go, you know, would go bust, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a possibility. Uh, I don't know if that's like the, the prime uh, cause of it, but it's definitely a possibility. I think that, you know, people at this point in time with the internet, allowing people to connect all over the world. I mean, look at us, we're so many miles away and we're able to connect, share information. I think that's a big problem for the pharmaceutical companies. And I don't look at pharmaceutical companies like they're inherently evil. They're just a business. They're in the business of making a profit but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best for us as humans, right? I think the best for us as humans are the things that work the fastest, the best with the least side effects and are easily adoptable and translatable to all everybody. So yeah, th this type of stuff is an exciting frontier and you know, it's just an exciting time to be alive. Yeah. And also the public has a weird perception of DMT. When you talk of DMT, they think, okay, this guy is a hippie. From, he's into psychedelics and he's a druggie and he, he's up to no good. How do you think we can maybe change DMT's uh, reputation? Well, I think that's a big part of that is uh, intertwining those that discussion with the fact that it's produced naturally in the human brain because that means if I'm a hippie, you're a hippie, right? <laughs> that means that if I'm talking about endogenous DMT and you think that I'm a hippie because that's my interest, then you're not interested in yourself and you should be interested in yourself because this is about your potential, right? Like your potential, my potential, our potential as a society. So I think that's why I feel like the endogenous conversation is so important when speaking about DMT. And I want to get the word out there more that, you know, there are, there is research indicating that, you know, this molecule is produced within our brain and it probably has an important role in our, our perception, our emotions. So has nothing to do with hippie and it has more so to do with uh you know our brain study and neurology yeah you spoke about i, I mean you just said molecule that reminded me of uh, strassman's books the spirit molecule uh have you read that book and has that inspired you to take this journey i did read that book and i would say that it wasn't my initial inspiration to take the journey but it was intriguing that a scientist uh, with credentials like Rick Strassman, who wasn't a hippie in any sense of the word, he was like a very straight-laced scientist, was studying it, and he did interesting research in the 1990s, and, you know, obviously guys like Joe Rogan, Aubrey Marcus have been talking about it uh, since then, publicizing, you know, his study and the potentiality of it all, so, yeah, I mean, give Rick Strassman a lot of credit, uh, if you've read his book, you understand that he went through a lot to go through the administrative process to do a proper study at University of Mexico. So um, I give him a lot of credit, but yeah, he wasn't the inspiration for DMT Quest, but I would say that he probably played a, some sort of part in it. Okay, so what was your main inspiration? I would say my, my mystical, the mystical experience that I had in 2013, in which uh, I became aware of the human potential and that 
uh, outside of your normal waking consciousness states. Uh, it seems as though your body and your brain has the ability to do uh, things that normally aren't possible. So ever since then, I've been trying to reverse engineer how that occurred. And uh, that's pretty much the catalyst for all of this. Okay. And uh, you also written two books, Questions for the Lion Tamer. <laughs> what does that mean? Questions for the Lion Tamer. Why do you want to ask the Lion Tamer <laughs> questions? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny is because the Lion Tamer, it always seemed funny when uh, you had the king of the jungle, right? A, a six or 700 pound lion being controlled by a little guy with like a little whip, right? So I, I get the feeling that all of us have that lion spirit in us. And my question to the lion tamer, which I think is more like society or organized religion, is like, how did you uh, tame the human? How did you suppress us from knowing our true selves? How did you suppress the lion spirit with all, all of us? So it's more of like, you know, you're asking a funny question, like, how'd you do that? How'd you trick us? And, uh, you know, that, that's why I, I, I titled it that. Yeah, and it's funny if you could just whisper to the lion, you know, you can actually pounce on the lion tamer if you want any second. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's what I'm saying. Like, like you mentioned earlier about the pharma companies and like, you know, not wanting the word to spread that we can heal ourselves. And that's a big part of it. For me, I'm very interested in the potential, not just to heal mental disorders, but also physical disorders, right? Like, why can't we use the mind to affect our nervous system to affect our internal organs to make them healthier right like why do we have to stop at just mental wellness why can't we go all the way and see if we can heal physical illness as well and if we can heal heal mental illness physical illness uh, spiritual wellness i mean then we have like a very high functioning society right yeah if we it's empower ourselves yeah it's, it's interesting you spoke about physical illnesses because a lot of individuals who tried Wim Hof breathing they say that they've reduced their gut inflammation after doing Wim Hof breathing. In my case, I used to hyperventilate last year. I would wake up in the middle of my sleep and I would go, <gasps> you know, I would find it difficult uh, to breathe. And then I started doing Wim Hof breathing and it just went away. So it's so undiscovered. And uh, yeah, have you had any such experiences of physical illnesses? Yeah, I mean, that was part of uh, my awakening was that... Um... <clears throat> I had really bad gut inflammation, sleep problems, all sorts of, uh, you know, health issues and basically doing like a deep cleanse of the body, you know, in an accidental sort of manner. Uh, it's almost like I had a spontaneous healing of, of my you know, illness. And um, yeah, that's why I was like, wait, if this happened to me, this can happen to others. And, you know, the more I read, the more I understood that it has happened to others. And the question is, well, how come, you know, society as a whole didn't know about that? So, you know, I was trying to find a way that we can communicate that we all have like an underlying ability to heal ourselves, like mentally and physically. And uh, yeah, that's, that's why, you know, I'm, I'm so interested in all this. So absolutely. Do you think uh, making a documentary like DMT Quest, uh, you know, through the documentary, we could, you could educate more individuals? I hope that's what I'm hoping to do, at least to go ahead and break the ice because it's just our first episode. I plan to make at least 50 or 60 more episodes. So, you know, hopefully much more than that, to be quite honest. Like it depends how much fundraising we can do, but I would like to put out six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 episodes a year. 
I mean, that's the goal. So this is the first episode to kind of alert the world that endogenous DMT exists, that it seems to be an important subject, that it seems to tie in with altered state of consciousness like Wim Hof method and maybe something else in following episodes we can include. And um, yeah, I'm just hoping to create some sort of education for the general public because the public doesn't read scientific studies, right? Like they, they'll look at a study and they say, oh, this is the words don't make sense to me. It's too complicated. So that was kind of my goal is to create a documentary. So maybe a person that doesn't read the sciences so much could somewhat understand what's going on. What do you understand from the science of endogenous DMT and your association with, you know, uh, University of Michigan and uh, John Dean? Yeah. So it seems as though DMT, for at least from the research that I've read, is that DMT has is acts as an anti-inflammatory, antioxidant. You know, these things seem to be important compounds. Uh, you know, we hear about antioxidants, anti-inflammatory in the food we eat, like vegetables and things like that. So it would seem that if the DMT has similar uh, properties, that it would be important for us to maybe have a proper regulation of that system. Um, like we said earlier, <clears throat> it seems as though it could offer a way for us to change our, our neural structures as well. Um, from the 2019 study, there was three main points. Uh, one of them was that it, it's not just the pineal gland that produces DMT. It's actually produced at our choroid plexus. So it's two structures on the, on the left and right side of the brain and where our cerebral spinal fluid is made. And cerebral spinal fluid uh, acts as a cleanser of the brain and it cushions the brain. So it's a very important aspect of proper brain function, as well as the cerebral cortex. So DMT is produced throughout the cerebral cortex. So basically like a huge part of the brain. So that was an important uh, finding within that study. Another important aspect of the study was that uh, DMT is produced at almost the same levels as serotonin and dopamine. So serotonin and dopamine are commonly studied neurotransmitters that you know, big pharma companies have utilized the serotonin system like SSRIs and things like that in terms of how to address uh, neurological dysfunction. So, you know, the fact that DMT is produced in our brains at similar levels as those commonly studied neurotransmitters all the time, uh, that was an important finding, right? Because prior to his study, uh, there was a speculation that DMT was only released maybe during dreams or near-death experiences or things like that. But it seems as though it's modulating our everyday waking consciousness. And it's probably upregulated during uh, certain states. Like the, the third part of John Dean's study and Gmo Borjigan's study was that uh, in the visual cortex of rats undergoing cardiac arrest, they saw a 600% increase in DMT. So maybe that correlates with the visionary experiences people see during their near-death experiences. So yeah, that, that's that's kind of like a, a quick summary of the research that um, that was coming out of University of Michigan in the past eight years or so. That's fascinating. I mean, I have, now we kind of have an explanation to why people feel that way during a near-death experience. A lot of people uh, talk about near-death experience the same way people talk about psychedelics. They see colors and dreams. <laughs> I think, yeah. Yeah. That's and they're very transformative, right? The, the fascinating aspect is that like when people take a certain level of psychedelics, they feel like this thing called ego death where uh, they, they come back from their experience and they come back transformed, maybe more humble, maybe more appreciative of everything in their life. 
And when people have near-death experiences, they describe a very similar thing, right? Like a, a sort of ego death, just being thankful, not just to be alive, but seeing the world with new eyes, you know? So it's interesting, right, that near-death experiences, it, based on the studies that Dean and Gmo did, DMT is upregulated 600%. Maybe, maybe there is some overlap between that and the psychedelic experience. Fascinating. And uh, you spoke about your own spiritual uh, experience that you had. Uh, yeah. Has your spiritual experience compelled you to question the nature of reality? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Before I thought that uh, the only thing that exists is what you see. And when you die, it probably just turns black and you never even knew you existed. That was my perspective before. And my perspective now is that I'm open to all of it. Uh, I don't necessarily believe all of it, but I'm open to all concepts. I have a lot more respect for religion, but I'm not a religious person, but I have respect for everything spirituality because uh, you don't know what another person could experience. You might assume that you know, or you might assume that you can interpret what the, their experience was, but you really can't because you weren't in their body. And it seems to be a very complicated conversation. So absolutely, it, it has opened my eyes and, and it's humbled me to be able to, uh, I guess, be a better perceiver of the world and just to take things a moment at a time did you have a religious upbringing john i had a like a catholic upbringing and i never believed it because i you know the stories in the bible seem so far-fetched that i never believed that they could really occur and then you know church was just so boring that i never wanted to go so uh it just i didn't really see the point of it you know there was no proof of anything religious being real and then when you go to school and you you're in the science courses they don't even acknowledge anything religious being real so you know you spend most of your life going to school and enjoying school and not religion so you know by the time i'm you know in my early 20s i just assumed all religion was fake and uh, what about now do you think maybe there is a god and if there is a god how do you imagine god to be <laughs> <laughs> that's a complicated question uh i believe that yeah there probably is something that uh created this whole reality i don't know what he or she looks like i don't know where or he or she lives i have no i i don't even pretend to feel like i have a knowing of 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 what it is but for whatever reason i'm definitely open to the concept have you tried out ayahuasca personally yeah, yeah, I have tried ayahuasca. Right. I, I didn't, I haven't really had a super full-blown mystical experience. I was more trying to compare it to how my body felt, my perception felt during my, I guess, my non-exogenous uh, substance uh, mystical experience. But uh, it, was, it was an interesting experience nonetheless. And I could see the therapeutic uh, benefits that helps a lot of people. But for me, uh, you know, it wasn't really so profound uh, compared to... Uh, you know, my own naturally induced mystical experience. So in that way, would you say endoasca has benefits that ayahuasca doesn't have? Well, you know, <laughs> that's a good question as well. I think it's different strokes for different folks. I think, you know, some people really need ayahuasca, right? That like they're very depressed or they're addicted to drugs and, you know, they need like to change the system very fast. Uh, for some people, ayahuasca will work really well. Other people can do things called like 
holotropic breath work or maybe prolonged Wim Hof method over the course of maybe hour and a half, two, three hours, and they can have very similar mystical experiences. So yeah, I think some people will benefit more from the endowaska system and some people, you know, in, in a very kind of um, crunch time situation might benefit from ayahuasca. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, do, do you think maybe we should legalize microdosing and have microdosing clinics all, all around the world? That's a great idea. And I, I believe there's absolutely no reason why microdosing shouldn't be illegal. I, I absolutely believe that microdosing should be legal based on everything that I've seen uh, from people that haven't done huge doses of psychedelics, but they have anxiety or depression. And I see them take microdoses consistently. And after three weeks, they're a different person. And after three months, that stayed. And six months and nine months, it still stayed. And it's so cheap. And there's, from what I understand, almost no negative side effects. So there's no reason why not. What do you think are the biggest obstacles to DMT research? For endogenous DMT research right now is the fundraising. And, you know, I guess it's just getting the idea of the importance of this type of research out there in front of individual philanthropists, because, you know, a lot of scientific research is funded by the government, right? Whether you're in India or United States or the UK or wherever, most of the scientific research is funded by the government and the government hasn't been funding uh, endogenous DMT research in the United States for a very long time. So that's the biggest obstacle right now is getting the fundraising. So getting the word out there, getting the DMT quest word out there that we exist, that we need to raise money for endogenous DMT research. And that's, that's the biggest obstacle because there's scientists ready and willing to go ahead and study this, but they just don't have the funds. And if you got the funds, if you got a lot of money, what would you mm -hmm. do with it? I would supply the, the scientists with uh, the research funds to go ahead and carry it out. And uh, I would produce documentaries based on the research to educate the public, just like you saw in the first uh, DMT Quest episode, we would just produce this forever, you know? And, and just to be like upfront, I wouldn't just fund uh, just DMT research, but also I'm interested in studying like the, the electrical aspects of the body, the magnetic aspects of the body, you know, I've had, I've had conversations with Bill Bankston. He's a great researcher. That's the president of the society. Um, this, the society, let me see, what is it called? It's, they have a great YouTube channel. Just look up Bill Bankston and Healing Hands. He, he's done some great work. And he has a great organization with like 500 academic researchers that they all study like what's considered edge science. So science that's not super popular, but it's real. And it's all about like pushing the boundaries of what we think is the human potential. Yeah, that's interesting. And you also spoke about electricity in your, in your, in the body. Yeah. Could you, yeah. could you elaborate on that? Yeah. So one of the, in my, in both of my books, uh, questions for the lion's hammer one and two, I consistently cite a book written by Dr. Robert O. Becker. He was a medical doctor and a researcher. He wrote the book, uh, The Body Electric. I feel like it's probably one of the most important books of the past hundred years. And his foundational research was studying um, the regeneration capabilities of salamanders. So salamander is an amphibian. And if you cut off its arm, uh, it starts to regenerate. So mammals can't do that. But I was just like, that's a fascinating area of research because if a human could regenerate their arm, that would be considered magical, right? 
but salamanders do it regularly and we just feel oh it's just a part of their their natural being but anyhow dr robert o becker studied uh you know the the physiological changes that would take place during the regeneration of a salamander limb and he started to tie in well what's going on in the brain what's going on in this part of the body and it, it seemed as though what he found was that an altered state of consciousness was important towards the re, towards the regenerating the limb of these salamanders because if he would block the altered state of consciousness with the magnet then the, the limb would fail to regenerate so you know, electrophysiology is a well-known aspect of the body. It's not as popular as the chemical conversation, but it's a very important aspect. I think uh, Tufts University right now is doing intriguing research regarding uh, may maybe more modern uh, studies regarding the importance of electricity and the body. I think they have a study called the electric frog face where they left a microscope on overnight and they saw that as a tadpole's face was forming, there was an electric signal before the cellular formation of the frog face. This, based on what I remember, the scientists in, a, in an interview stated that it shows that one electrical signal, one electric signal can influence uh, complex cellular formation, indicating that the way that we look at physiology might need a revamp. We might need to learn new things about what we think we know about the human body no, or all bodies really. That's fascinating. And that explains why you called your second book Swimming in Electric Endo Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because I feel as though during altered states, um, we're able to go ahead and influence our body through our intent. And I feel as though those signals probably take place electrically, right? And then maybe there's a chemical correlation, maybe a DMT upregulation, but you know, the chemical upregulation is going to follow the electric signaling because the electric signaling is so much faster. And, um, you know, when, when you speak about, you know, concepts like the Monroe Institute or the International Academy of Consciousness, where people describe things like out-of-body experiences, you know, you can't, if you want to talk about things extending past the physical body, you have to talk about the aspects of electricity or magnetism in which our consciousness can actually expand past the physical body and have a different states of perception that can be verified. So I think that's an important aspect to intertwine with the DMT conversation. How do you think we can have altered or better versions of uh, our own consciousness? That's a great question. I think that, you know, there's, there's different layers, right? Like if we are just kind of in our normal waking state and maybe we're going to work or going to school or whatever it is that we do all day, taking care of the kids. I think that, uh, you know, I think nutrition is an important aspect. I think proper respiration. I think people, they tend to normally shallow breathe. And I think there's studies out there indicating that if you breathe shallow and you start to build up the carbon dioxide in your brain, it can induce anxiety and panic attacks. So I think you know, proper breathing, deep breaths into the nose, out through the mouth can um, just give her, uh, give us a proper biochemistry to have a better states of consciousness throughout our waking, our normal waking state. Um, also, the things that we ingest, right, the music we listen to, the movies that we watch, the books that we read, whatever we watch on our phones or whatnot. I mean, if you're a product of our environment, right, so if you put one cell in a very crappy environment, it's gonna be a product of that environment. It's gonna live, die, or mutate. And I feel we're, us as a living human body is pretty much the same. 
we're going to be a reflection of the environment that we put ourselves in. You know, we have a choice of what we watch, what we eat, what we ingest, how we breathe. And if we were to change all those things, you can change the, basically the cell, the person, right. Based on changing all those things. So I feel as though, yeah, like uh, some of those concepts, like better breathing, better eating, uh, ingesting better content can definitely help help our consciousness. Yeah, I mean, we live in a time where we breathe too fast and we ingest, we digest a lot of crappy food and we're constantly addicted to social media. We're scrolling down and down and down. And I think this this kind of environment has dumbed down, down, down as, as individuals and as a society. What is your opinion on this? Yeah, I feel as though it's, it's difficult, right? Like, I hate to call people dumb, but at the same time, like, it does feel in a certain way that uh, people's attentions aren't there, right? And if you don't have attention, you can't, ha- you can't really recall information as well. And if you can't recall information as well, you can't really put things together and have like a comprehensive thought process. So absolutely, I, I feel as though it's, it's sad in a sense because some of the social media stuff has been very strategically engineered to take our, our attention spans away and to make them so short and so superficial and not very uh, deep thought processes. So yeah, I do feel as though it's been detrimental in certain ways, but I do feel as though if if you know how to use uh, the channels out there for for more optimization, then I feel like there's the the good aspects of them as well. Do you think uh, Wim Hof breathing could enhance the human potential? I feel as though it's a great gateway because it would put a person in an altered state of conscious. Definitely. So if some, anybody that does Wim Hof method for 20 minutes in a row. So basically you can go on the Wim Hof method, just type in Wim Hof method breathing tutorial and it'll show up on YouTube for free. I think it has like 20 million views or something. And if you do that once and you do that twice, that'll be about 20 minutes because it's 10 minute video. And after 20 minutes, you're going to be in an altered state of consciousness and during that altered state of consciousness, I feel as though you, it allows you to tap into those things like visualization, visualizing within the body, maybe even rewiring like your negative thoughts and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I feel as though Wim Hof method breath work when done properly for a prolonged period of time can, can allow you to access those types of things. All right. Can I ask you a very vague question? Sure. What do you think is the purpose of life? The purpose of life, um, just based on everything that I've read, my gut intuition, my mystical experience, it seems as though it's about soul evolution, evolution of the soul. So, you know, I subscribe to reincarnation based on the studies at University of Virginia that have been going on for like 40 years where they, uh, it seems as though they have, uh, significant enough consistent data on thousands of young children that seem to remember and recall uh, vivid past lives that have uh, seemed to be they're able to match it up with records of people that have lived so that's a very interesting field of reincarnation another aspect of reincarnation is during psychedelic experiences and people vividly recall living in a certain it's just something so vivid that they can't deny it. It doesn't feel like a dream. It felt realer than real. And then you have the altered state of consciousness, things like hypnosis in which they're doing regression. And a lot of people recall 
things like a past life, like, you know, hundreds of thousands, not millions of people. So I subscribe to the concept of that. And the only way that that concept makes sense is if we are incarnating each time for a purpose, for a reason, not for no reason. And I feel as though it's each time you incarnate, it's it's for the reason of evolving your soul to become more emotionally whole, more emotionally intelligent, and just to become more evolved in that sense where, um, you know, the Tibetans have this concept called the rainbow body where once you reach a certain level of spiritual evolution, then you don't have to reincarnate anymore. You know, you've reached that pinnacle of uh, your, your spiritual evolution. And I don't know where you go after that. You know, I don't, I, I, I don't know, you know, I don't know anything really. I just, these are the concepts that I subscribe to. And I do feel that uh, it's part of your soul evolution and, and trying to help others. You know, I, I, I just, I really feel that inside is that, you know, not only do you want to develop your own soul, but if you can help people along the way, then that's definitely part of uh, the reason for being. Well, that's, I mean, it, I, we always think of reincarnation in a spiritual or in an esoteric way, but uh, this is new to me. I didn't know a university is conducting a scientific study on reincarnation. Do you think we, there is scope for more scientific studies on human beings reincarnating? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the only reason why that university was able to even carry out those studies was because there was a philanthropist, I think, was it the 1980s or the 70s, where he passed away and he left a large amount of money to that university specifically to study, you know, those sort of fields. So without that gentleman leaving that big chunk of money, we would never even know that these things existed. And that's just one university. Imagine if there was 20 universities around the world studying the same thing. We might have 100,000 uh, data points or a million, right? And at that point, you know, if we have enough media coverage of that data, then, you know, we force the whole world to look at concept like reincarnation a little bit more seriously, right? Rather than writing it off as just, mysticism from like an old religion but you know i just uh, yeah i think it's an important aspect of life because i think we need to understand what this experience is all about i think it would offer some some comfort to people right because right now it seems as though a lot of people live for the moment uh before they die so i want to experience this i want to experience that i want to have this pleasure i want to have that pleasure when in reality, maybe it might serve their soul to maybe have a different sort of experience for their evolution, you know, maybe treat others better, treat themselves better. And um, yeah, I, th I think it's very important. If reincarnation is real, then could we be experiencing trauma from our past lives? That's a great question. <laughs> I have heard some of those concepts uh, for sure in, in the, the things that I've read. Uh, you know, at the University of Virginia, they have, there's a book written by uh, Ian Stevenson. He was a medical doctor there. And I think there's a book in which there's like 20, it's a, it's a book called Reincarnation and Biology, where these are young children who they recall a past life, but not just that. They, let's say they, they're born with a deformed ear and the, the past life that they recall it's like, let's say there's 40 points in which the kid remembers. They, they lived in a certain city. Their parents had this name. They lived at this address. They had this brother and sister. This was their favorite food. This was the, you know, what they did, you know, growing up or whatever. 
and they died in a traumatic manner in which like part of their ear was cut off. And then so they come into this life and part of their ear is deformed and they're recalled in the past life. So what I'm saying is that, yeah, when you ask about trauma, experiencing trauma from a past life, that's a, a very clear sort of case of like a physical trauma that seemed to have taken place in a past life that manifested into this incarnation. So yeah, look up that book, Reincarnation and Biology by Ian Stevenson. He's a doctor. I'm, def I'm definitely going to look up uh, into this. Um, another issue is that a lot of this edgy science is looked at by the mainstream media as pseudoscience. Where do mm -hmm. you think pseudoscience uh, gets an opportunity to evolve into mainstream science? Well, mainstream science is just mainstream distribution of the message. So, you know, when you're covered by the New York Times, the New York Post, Newsweek magazine, you know, like all the major news outlets, that's when something is considered mainstream. As long as you keep those things like edge science out of mainstream, then it's always going to be, it could always be labeled as pseudoscience, but it's irrelevant. If the people are interested in the field, if the people are interested in it, then it's up to them to go ahead and spread the word to other people and just have discussions like we're having discussions and it's up to people whether they adopt it or not. You know, there's so many things that are popular, but not necessarily real. And there's certain, there's so many things that are unpopular that are perceived to not be real, that are actually real. So, you know, it's really up to the person to make up their own mind. I'm not here to convince anybody. I just cite what I feel are reputable researchers with reputable data, and it's up to the people to make their decision on what's real and what's not. True, true. So what are your future plans, John, with the TMT Quest? Well, right now, uh, you know, we're in some discussions with some people to go ahead and uh, you know, finance more research so we can go ahead and do episode number two. Hopefully we can uh, put out episode number two later this year. It's kind of cutting it close. So it might be early next year, but um, yeah, I just looking to go ahead and fundraise for, for more research regarding endogenous DMT and periphery fields. Uh, like I stated, edge science and just go ahead and put more documentaries regarding uh, the research and trying to alert the public to the importance of this all and the implications. Hey, man, uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And uh, I want to thank you for your time. That uh, concludes our uh, podcast. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, man. It was great to connect. I can feel your energy. You have like great questions. You are interested in life and exploring. So if you have any questions, you have my email and let's keep in touch. Yeah, sure, man. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Bye.